0: Ah, election night. The The first Tuesday after the first Monday in November every four years. Every two years if you're one of those nerds who cares about the midterm elections. But whether you're a down-the-rabbit-hole, engrossed political junkie like I am, or you're a normal person with a normal life who tunes in every four years just to check out who the leader of the free world might be, there's always a formulaic standard to nights like these. And it's relatively the same every election year. Your friends and family gather around the television, maybe wearing buttons, hats, or some other sort of campaign gear, and everyone watches with bated breath that oh-so-sensational election media coverage.
1: It's election night in America, and a nation in crisis is at a crossroads.
2: We're counting down to the first exit polls and the first results as our coverage begins now.
0: Oh, come on. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The panel of news anchors and correspondents all sitting around a big desk, The guy at the giant electronic map of the country that flashes with red and blue states throughout the night. The revolving door of pundits, panelists, polling experts, and journalists, all bickering like middle school girls about whose certified electoral prediction is right, only for them all to be wrong. The data analytics about Cobb County and how it voted in 1960, 1970, 1980, and 2000. The hurried interruption of the breathless coverage as, we have another projection to make. It's fast-paced, messy and often imprecise. And oh man, is it addicting. Elections dictate more than just who gets to put their feet up on the resolute desk. They determine the balance of power, the direction of the country for 2, 4, or even 6 years. In the presidential election of 2020, incumbent Republican Donald J. Trump faced off against then former Vice President Joseph R. Biden. Rising political tensions made this one of the most divisive elections in our nation's history with soaring rhetoric from both candidates and parties about how freedom, democracy, America was at stake. On top of all of it, there was a pandemic that forced many voters to cast absentee or mail-in ballots, a great thing for doctors and public health officials trying to drive down the rates of COVID-19, a not-so-great thing for news networks trying to drive up their election night ratings. No one knew how long it might take to count all the votes this time, so networks were left floundering, more or less, unable to offer the carbon copy coverage, that call-the-race-at-midnight coverage that we've all gotten so hooked to. And so they clung to exit polling and computer predictions as a crutch. But this isn't the first time that the media has been caught in this kind of bind. Not even close. In fact, it reminds me of the first time computers were ever used to predict the result of an election. And if you thought 2020 was shambolic, phew, you ain't seen nothing yet. But we've seen all that before. Welcome to President of Times, the podcast about America's past, America's present, and how it all seems to be repeating itself. I'm Dylan Mims. Today we're looking at the history of election night in modern day America, and how it got to be just so cinematic. And it all starts with some really bad guesswork. Okay, so picture this. It's Tuesday, November 2nd, election night, 1948. Democratic President Harry Truman and his running mate, Senator Alvin Barkley, are up against Republican Governor Thomas E. Dewey and his running mate, then Governor Earl Warren. And then there was the independent Dixiecrat, Senator Strom Thurmond, but he's not really relevant to this story, so we're not going to talk about him all that much. Anyway, if you were to ask the veteran Washington Post correspondent of the Chicago Tribune, 71-year-old Arthur Sears Henning, which one of these three, but really two serious contenders would have come out on top that night, he would have told you confidently that Dewey would win in a landslide. And that's exactly what he told his bosses back in Illinois when he sent them his headlining story early that evening. A little too early that evening. You shouldn't judge poor Arthur too harshly, though. He'd accurately predicted four out of the past five elections, going back to 1928, and he'd been up against a tight deadline before the polls had even closed in the East. But nevertheless, there it was, in all uppercase and black and white. Dewey defeats Truman was printed eight columns wide on the Chicago Tribune's front page. Dewey and Warren won a sweeping victory in the presidential election yesterday, Henning wrote in his news piece. Early returns showed the Republican ticket leading Truman and Barclay pretty consistently in the western and southern states. Indications were that the complete returns would disclose that Dewey won the presidency by an overwhelming majority of the electoral vote. Except he did not. (laughs) The favorite to win it, Thomas Dewey, lost handily to President Truman, 303 electoral votes, to just 189. The underdog, an FDR successor, scraped out another four years for himself in the White House. Now the Tribune would eventually come to correct the headline, but not until after 150,000 of the Dewey Defeats Truman papers had already gone into circulation. It was the biggest political upset and most embarrassing prediction error in American history. Harry Truman's career survived election night 1948. Arthur Henning's career did not. Poor old Arthur. But like I said, you shouldn't judge him too harshly, it wasn't really his fault. If you would ask any reporter at the time, or in the days before the election, if you had even asked Truman's own campaign staffers, they probably would have told you the same thing. Now, they may not have printed it on the front page of the newspaper, but that's besides the point. Just about everyone in that election got it dead wrong. And so, four years later, in 1952, pundits and pollsters and correspondents alike were determined to get it right.
2: effort is recorded in constantly growing files. But as we progress, we accumulate more data, more records, more reports than we can easily handle. Even through the use of present-day office equipment, it becomes increasingly difficult to process this accumulation to obtain the information we need. To meet this need for high-speed data processing, the scientists and technicians of the Eckert mauchly Division of Remington Rand have created a miracle of electronic development.
0: It was called the UNIVAC, the Universal Automatic Computer. Its main console was 14 feet long and 7.5 feet wide. The whole thing was the size of a one-car garage, and it weighed a whopping 16,000 pounds. It was the world's first commercial computer, the brainchild of John Muckley and Presper Eckert. The engineering duo from the University of Pennsylvania had released ENIAC, the first general-purpose digital computer, five years earlier. But the smaller and newer Univac, they promised, would also be faster.
2: Univac. A complete electronic system for sorting, classifying, computing, and decision making. Acting upon alphabetical as well as numerical data. At incredible speeds and with complete accuracy.
0: The company behind the product? Remington Rand, the American manufacturer. Think of them like the Apple of the mid-20th century. Well, no. Think of them like the Microsoft, IBM was the Apple, but they wanted to be the Apple. In the 20s and 30s, they were known for making typewriters and electric shavers, all sorts of stuff, but now it was the 50s and they were eager to make their mark on the up and coming world of computers.
2: Right now, UNIVAC is handling automatically and economically unbelievable volumes of statistical work for the United States Bureau of the Census. Work that formerly took weeks and months to do is now being done in a matter of hours by Univac.
0: That's right. Univac was already in use, commissioned by the United States Census Bureau, tallying and processing statistics of a nation and its people. But with 5,400 vacuum tubes and the ability to tabulate 4,000 items a minute, Muckley and Eckhart were convinced it could do more. The whole selling point of Univac was its ability to consume and deal with vast amounts of quantitative data, something called data processing. I know, super sexy. Remington Rand marketed UNIVAC as an innovative remedy to the inefficient and time-consuming work that was being done manually in the 50s. Its speed and commercial status promised to make electric data processing the way of the future. No need to arrange employee payroll, research market trends, or calculate the population of a congressional district. UNIVAC could do it all for you.
2: Leaders in business have been quick to grasp the efficiency of UNIVAC for handling the large data processing operations that consume more and more precious time within their organizations."
0: Not everyone agreed with Muckley, Eckert, and Remington Rand, though. At Univac's unveiling in 1951, the press was less than enthused by the machine and its hypothetical capabilities. Over the past 10 or so years, computers had gone from being a never-before-seen phenomenon to something much more commonplace. It'd be another two decades before the average person could own a personal computer, but there was a dozen of these first-generation large electronic computers around the country. They just weren't exciting anymore. Admittedly, a little bothered by the lukewarm reaction UNIVAC received, John Muckley wrote an internal paper for Remington Rand in 1951, labeled "Company Confidential," about what he saw as a crisis of apathy. He called it, "Are computers newsworthy?" The short answer: No. At least not by themselves. He wrote that in the view of this rapid change in the last decade, computers are no longer front-page news. More than that, he said that computers seemed too out of touch, too phenomenal, and that was at least part of the reason why there wasn't this large-scale excitement over computers that had existed in the past. But he wasn't giving up. Underlined toward the end of his machinery manifesto, he wrote, Here is a real opportunity for a public relations program to step in and bring computers down to earth. If computers had been oversaturated and too far removed from reality, Muckley was eager to bring them back, and the opportunity he wanted was headed straight for him next November, bringing out banners and beating the drums. The election of 1952 was one of historic firsts. It was the first time a new, more modern type of campaigning was utilized. More on that later. It was also the first time the word egghead became aggressively used, but there'll be more on that later too. Most importantly, it was the first election since 1928 that neither a sitting president nor a vice president was running. After 12 years of Roosevelt and another 8 years of Truman, there was a power vacuum opening up in Washington, in the White House, that hadn't been there in 20 years. And by late summer 1952, there were two men vying to fill it. So here they are, the candidates. I'd like to make a little corny in the left corner, in the right corner joke here, but really, they were both pretty moderate, so it's more like in the center corner and in the other center corner. You have to remember, this is a time before the two parties had coalesced themselves on either the left or the right. They'd look completely foreign to us today in terms of ideology. Anyway, the two nominees were as follows. The Republican... Allied commander and war hero, then president of Columbia University, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He often went by his nickname,
1: Ike. Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum. we'll take Ike to Washington.
0: And then there was the Democrat, first term Illinois governor Adlai Stevenson.
3: Stevenson, vote Stevenson, a man you can believe in, son.
0: Yeah. Honestly, a lot of what you need to know about these guys, you can glean from these two advertisements. In her book, These Truths, A History of the United States, Harvard historian Jill Lepore describes the Republican candidate like this. Eisenhower's politics were moderate, as was his style. He described himself as a dynamic conservative. Conservative when it came to money, liberal when it came to human beings. He'd been a sort of waiting in the wings candidate within both parties for a number of years, always touting his military status as a rightful impediment to any political prospects he might have had. Well, by 1952, it clearly wasn't an impediment anymore. The general was in. All in. And man, did people like Ike.
1: You like Ike, I like Ike.
0: On the other hand, the intellectual and professorial Stevenson was described largely as an egghead. Ouch. His slogan, I love the gov, didn't quite play as well as I like Ike. This is actually where the modern day term egghead comes from. That'll be a bonus episode, I guess. The precedent times of anti-intellectual epithets. Anyway, The man you can believe in, son, was less than inspiring to most voters, if you could believe it. But he had his fair share of supporters. Eggheads of the world unite, he used to say. At one campaign stop, a woman approached him and said, I'm going to vote for you, and so will every thinking person in this country. Now, the details about this are a little fuzzy, but apparently Stevenson replied, I'm going to need a whole lot more votes than that. That Vote Stevenson ad that I played a little while ago goes on to critique Eisenhower as a commander turned politician. The woman sings, A soldier soldier man man is always always bound To think in terms terms of battleground battleground.
3: But Stevenson, civilian son Will lead us till the peace is won
0: But it might have served Stevenson right to think a little harder in terms of battleground himself, especially in that first campaign. He was trying to reason his way to the White House, appealing to the American people with rationale and intellect. The Eisenhower campaign was playing to base instincts, and that meant TV ads.
1: Eisenhower answers America. General, the Democrats are telling me I never had it so good. Can that be true when America is billions in debt, when prices have doubled, when taxes break our backs, and we are still fighting in Korea? is tragic, and it's time for a change.
0: Republicans spent $1.5 million on television ads that year, outspending the Democrats by almost 20-fold. His short and memorable TV spots were a little light on policy, but they were incredibly popular, and they outbeat Adley's long and dreary speeches, which were half an hour, at least. This right here is the birth of the kind of one-to-two-minute political ads that we see today. They weren't always commonplace. Ike did that. Governor Stevenson would later say that the idea that you can merchandise candidates for high office like breakfast cereal is the ultimate indignity to the democratic process. And maybe he was right. But the high road wasn't helping his poll numbers. The Gov was in trouble.
1: Let Adelaide go the other way. We'll all go with I. You like Ike, I like Ike, Everybody likes I. For president. Hang out the banners, beat the drum. We'll take Ike to Washington. We'll take Ike to Washington.
0: Adlai Stevenson wasn't the only one struggling to adapt to the changing times. Similar issues were faced by the journalists at the Columbia Broadcasting System, more commonly known as CBS. CBS hadn't been immune to the bad polling and faulty predictions that had discredited many of their peers four years ago. But their coverage, which for the first time included radio and television that year, hadn't just been wrong, it had also been boring. Critics said that the coverage was too static Basically just a visual representation of what was happening on the radio. The television boys were caught napping, one critic wrote in the New York Times. Thankfully, less than 3% of Americans actually had a television in their homes in 1948, so not many people were watching. But by 1952, 45% of Americans had televisions in their home. The stakes were high, and CBS needed to step it up. Enter Muckley, Eckert, and Remington Rand. According to his own account, Sig Meckelson, the news and public affairs director for CBS, was sitting in his office when Paul Levitin, one of the architects of the CBS election night coverage, burst into his office with, quote, stars in his eyes. He'd just come back from a business lunch with the PR director at Remington Rand. They wanted to help CBS improve their election night coverage by adding something to it. That something was UNIVAC. Remington Rand promised Levitin that As long as CBS could give UNIVAC the returns as they came in, the machine could quickly and accurately predict the winner of the 1952 election, live and on air. The network jumped at the chance. This was a win-win situation. For CBS, it was the entertainment jumpstart that their election coverage desperately needed. And, as Meccelson put it, quote, we could in all probability announce the winner of the presidential race while our competitors are still floundering in a sea of unsorted data. ABC and NBC, beware. This is where data processing becomes sexy. For Remington Rand, it was the down-to-earth kind of exposure that Muckley thought Univac needed. Because even before the fancy graphics and displays, if there was one thing Americans love, it's election night. There's actually a really interesting bit of history to this that I discovered while researching this episode. Election predictions have always been a really big thing in American culture and journalism. Walt Whitman even wrote this poem about it in 1884. This seething hemisphere's humanity, as now I'd name, the still small voice vibrating, America's choosing day. And newspapers trying to predict and report on election results is no novelty either. Americans are historically and famously impatient people, and the media was more than willing to try and satisfy the growing demand for information. In the 1800s, some southern newspapers would go to a pub and tally the amount of toasts that each candidate got, and a report of the toasts would come the next day in the paper, sort of like an early version of polling. A couple decades later, with the advent of the telephone, telecom companies used their lines to get election results from one half of the country to the other in record time. They ran these wires into clubs, restaurants, and other popular spaces where people were likely to gather on election night. And this is what started the whole gather-on-election-night, election-night-party tradition that's been carried out through hundreds of years since. And media organizations used to compete about whose entertainment display could attract the biggest crowds. At the same time, newspaper headquarters had started using light displays to project, no pun intended, who was winning throughout the night. They direct huge searchlights on top of their buildings and then flash them with certain color codes so people watching could know who was winning. In 1896, the New York Tribune created a 45-light display 500 feet above their building so that people watching from all over the city, from their homes, could know who was winning in each state at any given time. And the spectacle wasn't lost on newspapers themselves. They loved reporting the details of their own election night coverage, something Dr. Ira Chinoy of the University of Maryland calls the story of the story. In his 2010 dissertation, he mentions that the day after the 1920 election, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch devoted at least three news stories to itself. But they were by no means the only one. Everybody loved tooting their own horn when it came to how fancy their election coverage looks, how accurate their projection was, or how large of a crowd they'd attracted to watch their reporting. So, if you're wondering where the history of election night got to be so sensational, the answer is always... A Baltimore newspaper announced in all caps that a robot computer will give CBS the fastest reporting in history. Network correspondent Charles Collingwood, who would be instrumental in presenting the UNIVAC on election night, unveiled the project to his audience less than a month before election day. Apologies, I don't actually have the audio for this, so you'll just have to hear me read it. We've got a big secret around the CBS newsroom, Project X, he said. But now it's out. The Remington Rand people are going to let us use UNIVAC, a prodigious monster of electronic thought. If it works, we should know earlier than ever before who the winner will be. If it doesn't work, it won't be Univac's fault. Yeah, Collingwood put a lot of faith in Univac. He was so sure that it would give CBS the edge in election night coverage. A week later, he told his audience, he won't be the one to make a mistake. He just can't make a mistake. Collingwood did this weird thing where he called the machine he... Maybe he was trying to bring it down to earth in some way, but I haven't found anyone else who did this. Collingwood and CBS set up a second question for November. It wasn't just Adlai or Eisenhower. It was also man or machine. Man had already proven himself valuable in 1948. The question now was, could the machine do any better? Remington Rand and CBS thought they knew the answer to that question. Everyone else tuned in to find out.
1: Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The big election night, 1952, the year when the United States picks its 35th president. Balmy weather over most of the United States today and a record turnout apparently throughout the United States. We're going to be giving you all of the figures.
0: Coverage began at 8 p.m. Dwight Eisenhower watched the returns come in from his home at Columbia University. Stevenson was, reportedly, still waiting in line to vote. CBS chief anchor Walter Cronkite, flanked by two assistants, kicked off election night, 1952. The famed broadcaster Lowell Thomas remarked the situation on air.
1: It seems to me that uh, television has certainly come into its own this year. At the previous election night, four years ago, why, it was a case of television portraying radio, but this time everything
0: seems to be specially designed just for television. Thomas was right. Everything was especially made for television. The CBS studio was shot with one panoramic camera. You can see concrete at the desk in the back against the wall, the hordes of staffers analyzing exit polls and returns, a giant map of the United States, black for Democrat, black and white for Republican, and way, way, way in the back corner, There was Charles Collingwood. He was sitting in front of an electronic panel that was buzzing and flashing with lights. Now, he gestured and even spoke to the machine like it was Univac, but it wasn't. See, the thing is, there was actually only one Univac, and it was in Philadelphia. Remember, this thing was the size of a one-car garage, so it couldn't just be picked up and moved, not easily but CBS wanted something to show their viewers, so they decided to build a decoy UNIVAC in studio for Collingwood to talk to, even though the real UNIVAC at Remington Rand headquarters was the one making the predictions.
1: First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the theory of this. This is not a joke or a trick, it's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know, we hope it'll work.
0: A team of 25 mathematicians in Philadelphia had already given UNIVAC the voting information from the past two elections, 1944 and 1948. The plan was, as the new returns came in from that night, CBS would feed them to UNIVAC and in turn, UNIVAC would spit out the election prediction. But it wasn't really working that way. When Cronkite turned things over to Collingwood and UNIVAC, the machine was being remarkably uncooperative. UNIVAC, Collingwood asked, can you tell us what your prediction is now on the basis of the returns that you've got so far? Nothing. Have you got a prediction for us, UNIVAC? Still, nothing. Collingwood was forced to think on his feet. He said that he thought UNIVAC was an honest machine and that it just didn't have enough information to make the prediction yet. UNIVAC stayed silent. He turned the coverage back over to Cronkite. There was a reason Cronkite was called the most trusted man in America. His serious and objective reporting made him one of the best anchors and journalists of the age. So reading the basic, objective returns as they came in on air was directly up his alley. He continued to follow the election returns over the next hour. By 9.30, Eisenhower was leading Stevenson 2.5 million votes to 1.7 million. And by 9.45, the general had an electoral vote count of 279 based only on the 22 states he was leading in. This actually points out an interesting difference between coverage today and coverage back then. Because Cronkite wasn't calling states... It was way too early for that, but he was projecting what the electoral count would look like if Ike had won those states. The modern media would never do this. They don't call states unless they're absolutely certain. But absolutely certain is anywhere between 5 and 10 percent confidence, if we're being honest. But Cronkite knew what he was doing. The same couldn't be said for Collingwood. UNIVAC had nothing to report when Cronkite turned to Collingwood at 9.30, he blamed it on how slow CBS had been in updating UNIVAC's returns. Now it was 10.30. Eisenhower was the head in 29 states. Cronkite was ready, once again, for Collingwood and UNIVAC. But...
1: Do you mind sit down just a minute? We've, uh, we're talking about old UNIVAC here. What? And as I was saying, that as a great believer in the machine, we're having a little bit of trouble with UNIVAC. It seems that he's rebelling against the human element. Uh, We fed him some figures which were uh, a little out of the, the line of the sort of thing that he'd been expecting, and so UNIVAC came up and said he just wouldn't work under these conditions."
0: UNIVAC was still putting up a fight. This time, Collingwood claimed it was because CVS gave the right data but in the wrong order, ruining its intricate data processing abilities. It's honestly a little funny how loyal Charles Collingwood became to this machine. He simply wouldn't let it be wrong. It was always the human element. Thankfully, Arthur Draper, a Remington Rand innovation director and on-site spokesperson for UNIVAC in Philadelphia, at last had a partial prediction to make.
3: Uh, Draper? Yes, here. Uh, have you got a national uh, prediction from UNIVAC? Yes, UNIVAC's finally come through. Good, give it to us. huh? We've got Stevenson, 20 states. Eisenhower, 28 states. That adds up to an electoral vote for Stevenson
0: of 217, for Eisenhower, 314. It wasn't really anything special. After all that waiting, UNIVAC had predicted what anybody watching could have already guessed. In fact, UNIVAC was way behind CBS, which had more than 300 electoral votes likely to fall to Eisenhower. UNIVAC caught up with Conkright and CBS about 15 minutes later, giving a 4 to 1 odds to Eisenhower. By 11.30, another hour had gone by. Even more significant states had now fallen into the GOP column, like Virginia, Ohio, New York, and of course, the great state of Connecticut. The GOV was really in trouble now. Except according to UNIVAC, whose mechanical brain seemed to think that Stevenson still had a small chance of winning. I don't know, maybe there was some sort of intellectual affinity going on between the two. Univac's bottom-of-the-hour prediction gave Stevenson an 8-7 to odds against Eisenhower. I don't have the audio for this moment either, but apparently you can hear a member of the crew shout, aw, come on, when the latest prediction from Univac came in. That's just how erratic the machine was being. Collingwood had to think on his feet again. If you ask me, Univac is beginning to sound like a pollster, he laughed. Cronkite was grinning too. Maybe he was taking a little delight in the fact that the machine that was supposed to beat his news network at their own job was failing so miserably. Edward Murrow, who was providing CBS with commentary, was not smiling. Nor was he messing around at all.
1: I think it is now reasonably certain that this election is over. It seems clear on the basis of the big city reports and on the general trend that that General Eisenhower has
0: won the election. Now back to Walter Cronkite. The vote count stood at 10.3 million for Eisenhower to Stevenson's 9.1. Those numbers would more than triple over the next few hours. But Murrow had seen enough. He called the race for Eisenhower, and other networks started doing the same. Finally, around 11.45, it seemed like UNIVAC had come to its senses.
1: And now UNIVAC, UNIVAC our electronic brain, which a moment ago still thought there was a, a seven to eight chance for Governor Stevenson, says that the chances are 100 to one in favor of General Eisenhower. I might note that UNIVAC is running a few moments behind Ed Murrow however, Ed Murrow some 15 or 20 minutes ago said uh, he thought it was in the bag for General Eisenhower.
0: It definitely took the machine long enough. So much for the fastest reporting time in history, UNIVAC had done nothing but flip-flop and cause confusion all night. It wasn't the kind of publicity that either Remington Rand or CBS had hoped for or counted on. But funnily enough, that's not the end of the story at least where UNIVAC is concerned. The general mood at CBS as their broadcast entered its final hours was that UNIVAC had been a failure, not able to beat or even compete with the predictions their own flesh-and-blood election analysts had come up with. Arthur Draper was still in Philadelphia at 12.30 a.m., and the network put him on to explain what had gone wrong with the machine. Well, we
3: had a lot of troubles tonight. Strangely enough, they were all human and
0: not the machine. All human, not the machine. What was he talking about?
3: When Univac made its first prediction with only three million votes in, it gave five states for Stevenson, 43 for Eisenhower, 93 electoral votes for Stevenson, 438 for Eisenhower. We just plain didn't believe it. So we asked Univac to forget a lot of the trend information that we had put into it, assuming that that was wrong.
0: UNIVAC had predicted the correct outcome, and it had done so hours ago. At 8.30pm, just 30 minutes into the broadcast, UNIVAC had already told its handlers who was going to win. It printed out a little slip of paper that read, it's awfully early but I'll go out on a limb. And the machine predicted everything you just heard Draper report. 100 to 1 for Eisenhower. The CBS and Remington Rand people were disbelieving and got cold feet. They never sent along the prediction to Collingwood or CBS. Apparently there had been a panicked rush around the Remington Rand headquarters when the prediction came in. They just didn't believe so early on in the race, a race that was supposed to be close, that UNIVAC could guarantee an Eisenhower landslide. They ultimately didn't let the report go out. Then they modified UNIVAC's program, creating all the back and forth, yes and no predictions the machine would give throughout the rest of the night.
3: As the prediction, as more votes came in, the odds came back, and it was obviously evident that we should have had nerve enough to believe the machine in the first place. It was right. We were wrong. Next year, we'll believe it.
0: Cronkite interrupted him here, asking if he'd met four years from now, not next year. Draper said that he had. More than anything else about the CBS election night of 1952, this is the moment that got remembered. Machine had gotten it right, man had gotten it wrong. And this was also the sticking point of most of the stories of the story the next morning. Even though the public reaction came down swift and hard on both Remington Rand and CBS, it seemed like most of the fault was going towards man, not machine. The Jacksonville Journal read the headline, A machine makes monkey out of man. A talk show host said that he would hate to be a member of the company this morning if he had anything to do with Univac. UNIVAC, it seemed, had been the victim of bad handling. Its infallibility remained untarnished, even after its performance. Arthur Draper had a simple moral that he took from the ordeal. Don't think. Let UNIVAC do it for you. Don't think. Let the computer do it for you. The election of 1952 didn't end UNIVAC's predicting career. Far from it. If anything, the machine had been made even more famous. I guess Muckley and Remington Rand got what they wanted after all. It even made the cover of a Superman comic book. The machine became an icon. And of course it did. It was a computer, and computers were the future, whether they got elections right or not. Univac would be back to predict the election of 1956, and so would similar computing machines. Times were changing, and they were changing fast. What never changed, though, was the presence of computers in election night newsrooms. In 1952, it was a side piece, secondary entertainment. But as the years would go on, computers became more and more central to election night forecasting. It fueled a bad habit among the body politic. The American people wanted results, quickly, and computers could give that to them. But that's not all computers gave them. It also gave them confusion, uncertainty, and error.
2: We're going to uh, now project an important win for Vice President Al Gore. NBC News projects that he wins the 25 electoral votes in the state of Florida.
1: Florida has been prematurely called. First of all, I thought it was a little bit irresponsible, the networks, to call it before the polls closed. NBC News is now taking
2: Florida out of Vice President Gore's column and putting it back in the too-close-to-call Column, Doris. 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 Doris, Doris,
1: Doris, Doris. Uh oh, something's happened.
2: George Bush is the president-elect of the United States. He has won the state of Florida, according to our projections. Twenty-five electoral votes. All right, we're officially saying that Florida is too close to call. It's just far too confusing. It's just too confusing.
0: The constant demand for immediate answers doesn't lend itself to accuracy. So networks end up retracting projections when they call them too early and too fast, or worse. When networks take longer and wait for more votes to be counted before hedging a bet, it lets those who demand for immediate results claim fraud.
3: We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? (laughs) This is a fraud on the American public. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election.
0: Election nights, just like almost everything else in the world, use computers as a crutch. And 1952 is where that all began, with UNIVAC and its shaky election coverage. And after the 2020 election, after another night or nights of shaky, unsure election coverage, where voter turnout surpassed all expectations, where swing states swung surprisingly to the left and right, and polling, as always, turned out to be dead wrong, I'm brought back again to the CBS coverage in 1952, specifically the wrap-up. And I'm thinking about, as Cronkite let his co-anchors of the evening give their final thoughts, the words of Edward Murrow, the guy who, without UNIVAC's help, successfully called the election for Eisenhower. What he said then, in the wake of UNIVAC's failure, is akin to what we all should be thinking now, with the memories of 2020 not far behind us. I'll let him speak for himself.
1: To me, the most impressive thing about tonight is again the demonstration that the people of this country are sovereign, that they are unpredictable, and that somehow in a fashion that is as mysterious to pollsters as it is to reporters, the great normal majority in this country made up its mind as to the man it wanted to lead it.
0: I'm Dylan Mims. Thank you for listening to Precedented Times. If you like what you heard, and we hope that you do, please make sure to check us out anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. This episode of Precedented Times draws primarily from the work of Dr. Irid Chinoy of the University of Maryland and his 2010 dissertation, Battle of the Brains, Election Night Forecasting at the Dawn of the Computer Age. Supplemental information was drawn from These Truths, A History of the United States, by Jill Lepore of Harvard University. And from The Night a Computer Predicted the Next President by Steve Henn of NPR. As always, we thank and credit their incredible research, without which this show would not be possible. Thanks again for listening, and until the next Unprecedented Time.